Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and we're glad that you could be with us this morning. You know, I think there's a special place in heaven for those of you who come out on Time Change Sunday at the beginning of spring break. So, of course, I'm kidding, but we are very glad that you're here. Pastor Dean is getting some much-deserved time off with his family for spring break. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but the Bible actually starts with a marriage in a garden. And it actually ends with a wedding supper, a wedding banquet in the new heavens and new earth. So wedded bliss actually bookends the biblical story. And I probably don't have to tell you though that in between those two points, there's a whole lot of hurt. There's a whole lot of brokenness. Because while God has shown us his ideal, we do not live up to that. Sin and sinful actions corrupt that beautiful ideal. Marriage is even used as a metaphor of Christ and the church, but even that marriage is marked by sin this side of heaven. Sin on our part, not on Christ's. So there are no longer any perfect marriages. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And for many of you, this is likely to be a painful topic. Statistically speaking, the vast majority of people in this room have been affected by the pain of divorce. You may have sought a divorce. You may have been the party divorced. You may have been the child in a household where your parents got divorced or are currently going through that. That's actually part of my story. When I was uh, young, my parents separated. They divorced. And so for the majority of my childhood that I can remember, my parents were divorced. Now, no two situations are exactly the same. I'm not claiming to understand what you've been through or your situation exactly, but in principle, I've seen what that can do to a family up close because I've lived through it. Well, in the last few weeks, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen Jesus teach some pretty difficult things to accept. He's told us that uh, his disciples need to pick up their cross and follow after him, to pick up the symbol of Roman capital punishment and execution, die to themselves, and follow after him, to exchange their desires for his desires, their ambitions for his ambitions. And then Jesus told us that to be the greatest in the kingdom of God is actually to be a servant. So he flips the economy of the world on its head. And then last week, at the end of Mark chapter nine, we see that Jesus says that we should take sin so incredibly seriously that if we could chop off our hand to stop from sinning, we should do it. But of course, you can't actually stop sinning by not uh, having all of your body parts because sin is a matter of the heart. But nonetheless, Jesus shows us just how seriously we should take sin. So when we come to today's passage, it shouldn't surprise us that we may find something that confronts our sensibilities, our sense of autonomy, our cultural standards and practices, or maybe even our comfort. Now, when we talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage, we're, we're endeavoring to study something called Christian ethics, and not to make this seem like a college class, but ethics is concerned with how we should live. Moving forward, today, henceforth, what is the good thing to do? What is the right and God-pleasing, holy thing to do? So, all of us have sin in our past. We can't change that. You may have been divorced and remarried in your past. We're not really focusing on that today, but we are focusing on understanding God's design as revealed in the scriptures, and we're concerned with how we live moving forward. And we'll also see that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is grace for every sin and there is mercy for every hurt.
And I do want you to understand my heart on this today. It is not my intent to bring hurt or shame or pain to anyone. And I know that, that this, this topic likely will elicit those types of feelings, but that, that is not my intent today. It is often the case that as we study Scripture, we do find areas that confront our happiness, but yet at the same time conform our character to Christ. And when we best live in God's design, we flourish as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church, and even as a society. So let's look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. Mark says that he, being Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. The crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, which was their custom, and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus replies, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Now, it may not seem like it on the face of it, but the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in what they think is probably an unanswerable question. It may not seem unanswerable to us. What's so unanswerable about when's it okay to get a divorce? But as we unpack this today, we'll start to see that there's a lot more beneath the surface here than meets the eye. And as Jesus often does when he's questioned, he replies with a question or with scripture. In this case, he does both, but he starts with the question. And he says, well, what did Moses command you? What is in the Old Testament law? And they say, well, Moses permitted us to write the woman a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. But what's interesting is, is that's not actually what the law said. That's a paraphrase, and it's a kind of poor paraphrase at that. So let's look at Deuteronomy 24. We're going to read this in the New American Standard Bible. That's a fairly literal translation, which I think actually captures what was going on back in Deuteronomy. And it's kind of long, but this is all one law. This is all one thought, so bear with me. And it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or... If the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. This doesn't say that divorce should happen. This is not a command to divorce. This actually has the uh, intent of saying what type of remarriage is not acceptable explicitly. And the law actually reads like this. If a woman gets married and gets divorced and remarries someone else and gets divorced or the husband dies, she can't go back to the first husband. That is the intent of this law. It is incredibly specific. It's not providing for divorce. It's not condoning divorce. It's accepting that one has happened and it's trying to regulate a very specific set of circumstances that flow after that. That's really important for us to understand. Now, the, the divorce that's assumed to have happened there was because of an indecent thing. Now, what is that? Well, 
that question was debated in Jesus' day. And there were two schools of thought. There was, there was a school of thought called Hillel, and there was the school of thought called Shammai. And there was a Rabbi Hillel and a Rabbi Shammai. And Hillel taught that divorce was acceptable for pretty much anything. So if your wife burned your dinner, you could send her on her way. A great reason to eat out all of the time. Okay, Shammai, on the other hand, taught that divorce was only acceptable in the case of adultery. So on the face of it, it seems like the Pharisees are testing to see if Jesus is a theological liberal or a theological conservative. And if he takes the liberal route with Hillel, well, he'll lose credibility with the crowds. Okay, so this is starting to maybe seem a little more like a difficult question to answer. But what would be the problem in him accepting the view of Shammai? Well, Herod might kill him. Now, why do I say that? It probably seems like it came out of left field. Well, here's why. Verse 1 in chapter 10 tells us that Jesus has entered the region of Judea where Herod is the ruler, the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist when John the Baptist condemned his illegal uh, divorce and subsequent marriage to his brother's wife. Sounds like something out of a, a soap opera, but that's what happened. He married his brother's wife. Okay, And so John the Baptist criticizes and condemns this, and Herod chops off his head. And so I think it's likely that the Pharisees here are saying, well, Jesus is either going to reveal himself to be a theological liberal, or he's going to give an answer that will run afoul of Herod, and maybe, just maybe, Herod will kill him like he did John. So this is a difficult question to answer on the face of it, now that we understand the context. But Jesus doesn't fall for their trap. He turns the situation around on them, like he so often does. And here's what he tells them. Moses wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your heart. So they're following this paraphrase of an Old Testament law that dealt with a very specific set of circumstances, and they're thinking that we can divorce our wives, we have found reasons to do this, we can find a justification, smart people can rationalize anything, and Jesus is telling them, no, this provision was even originally given to you because your hearts were hard. That's not exactly the ringing endorsement of their behavior they were looking for. But nonetheless, that's what we find. Now, it's important for us to understand that a law can do one of three things. It can prohibit something. It can say, you cannot do this thing. It can promote something and say, you need to do this thing. Or it can simply permit. It could remain silent on something. And divorce was not prohibited in the Old Testament. It was also not commanded. The law was silent on the legitimacy of divorce, similar to how it was silent on many other things that we would affirm are wrong today. So it was implicitly permitted, but never promoted. But this specific law, the if a woman gets married and gets divorced and remarries and gets divorced, she can't go back to her first husband, that's actually there to, I believe, protect the woman. Because the woman, it was assumed in that verse, would have been given a certificate of divorce. Now, why is that important? Well, that proved that she did not commit adultery. And adultery under Old Testament law, as God gave it, the, the punishment for that was capital punishment. You would be stoned for committing adultery. That's how seriously God takes that sort of behavior. Now, that type of provision is not in place today, but I don't think God feels any less strongly about the behavior. However, the woman was protected by getting this certificate of divorce. But there's another reason I believe this law actually protects the woman. 
It prevented her from getting passed back and forth between men and husbands. So if someone was going to divorce his wife, he needed to be sure he actually wanted to divorce her. And there wasn't a reason to work this through. Because after she went and married someone else, which the Bible doesn't necessarily prescribe, but it does acknowledge would have happened because the woman would, would have needed security and stability. So after she remarried, she can't marry that first husband again. So he needs to be sure he wants a divorce. Now, this law probably doesn't say everything we would want it to, to protect women. I, I would agree with that. But in the culture, it was still a revolutionary step, but it was there to protect the woman, and it was given, Jesus says, because of their hardness of heart. But Jesus goes on to say in, in verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He's, he's not playing in the sandbox they've created. He's not getting into their rabbi dispute with Hillel and Shammai. He's not going to deal with and apply the, the law that was given because of the sinful hearts of men. No, he goes all the way back to the creation intent in Genesis 1 and 2. And Jesus knows how things were designed to be because he was the one through whom everything was created. And as our creator, Jesus knows best how we are to live. And here on the lips of Jesus, we find the definition, God's definition of marriage. One man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. One man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. All sex that is outside of that misses God's design and is sinful. Now some people will ask, where did Jesus address polygamy? Where did Jesus address homosexuality? Well, Jesus is the author of all of scripture, so there's that. But more than that, right here, he gives a definition which is very narrow, and hence it excludes everything outside of that. We wouldn't struggle with this in any other area. If you give a definition of something, and it very clearly articulates what that thing is, it's only when we come to areas we're not comfortable with that we say, well, it doesn't specifically address this other circumstance. Actually, things like polygamy and any other type of sexual conduct, whether it's in a married context, um, I'm sorry, a same-sex marriage context, or in an unmarried context, would fall outside of this ideal and standard given by Jesus. I think in our Western context, we want things to be very spelled out. We want it to say, you have to do this, you can't do this, or these things, or these things. But biblically speaking, design is really important. The way God has designed us and the world to work actually points to its good purpose. And when we, conversely, live outside of that design, that involves sin. Design, from a biblical perspective, tells us so much about what is right and what is wrong. Jesus also says something else here that I think is somewhat revolutionary. He says that God has joined the husband and the wife together. So if you're married, you may have thought that when you stood there on your wedding day, it was just the two of you doing something. It was the two of you committing to each other. It was the two of you consummating your relationship. But the Bible actually tells us that God was doing something, that God was joining the two people together. And what he has joined together no one should take apart. Our wedding vows today often contain the phrase, till death do us part. I remember my wedding vows. I'm standing there thinking, can this go any faster? Like places to go, things to do, okay? Actually, it's because I'm standing in the hot Florida sun. 
uh, in Daytona Beach, Florida in June, and my feet literally feel like they're on fire. Okay? I don't know if you're familiar with tuck shoes. They're made out of the same material that ovens are made out of. And so when the sun hits them, I'm standing there like trying to hide my feet. It probably looks like I need to use the restroom or I'm getting ready to run. I don't know what. But no, my feet were literally on fire, it felt like. And I remember that. And I remember part of my vows when we said, till death do us part. That's not a modern invention. That actually maps over God's original design that what God has joined together, let no man separate. The natural end of a marriage based on God's ideal is death. But often due to sin and hardness of heart, maybe on our part, maybe on our former spouse's part, likely both people, marriages end before death, sadly. And every failed marriage involves hurt and brokenness too. And doesn't that actually make sense? That if you took two people and you put them together to make one, something that is one, that if you were to separate that out, you don't end up with two holes, you end up with two halves. So divorce is kind of like losing half of you, but not like an intact half, like the left half of you or the right half of you. No, there's no area that it doesn't touch. There's nothing unaffected. It's kind of like if you had a tapestry and you pulled out every other thread You'd still see the picture, kind of, but every detail would be different. Nothing would be unaffected. Even the non-Christian world understands the severity of divorce. It's been likened to a death but without a funeral. People understand the gravity of it, but we still do it. And the question has to be, well, why? And since this isn't God's design for marriage, it's not surprising that it's incredibly painful. When we use a tool, a simple tool, like in a workshop, outside of how it was designed, bad things often happen, right? It's been said that if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You can get in a lot of trouble like that because you're not using the tool according to how it was designed. Well, we are so much more important and complicated than a tool, but our creator knows best how we should function. And when we don't live in that design, it doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to sin and hurt and brokenness, and not just for ourselves, but for all of those around us. People have lamented in recent years that the family seems to be breaking it down, as a social institution. Some people will point to same-sex marriage legislation as when that started. I think it started long before that. The family has always been somewhat imperfect because of sin, but we would have never gotten to the legalization of same-sex marriage if we hadn't first had no-fault divorce. You see, there are three aspects to what uh, Jesus' definition of marriage is. There's permanence, in other words, till death do us part, right? One flesh, one lifetime. There's complementarity, that it's a man and a woman. It's not just two people. That there's a design intent to how men and women are made different and complete each other. Well, no-fault divorce did rid of the permanence. Same-sex marriage legalization got rid of complementarity. Well, the only part left is number, right? So why just two people, right? Why is everyone bigoted with regards to three-person marriages, some will say. Now, I don't think that's the case. But there are cases working their way through the the court system now that, that rightly point out that if we're rejecting a Christian understanding of natural marriage, traditional marriage, then why should it only be two people? 
And this is what naturally follows when we rid ourselves of God's definition and think that we can define what marriage is. But actually, as the creation, we only describe what God has defined. And we only get it right in as much as we describe correctly how God has designed us to work. That probably sounds revolutionary today. I think it did back then. In Matthew 19, when Jesus speaks on divorce, the disciples reply, almost astonished, well, who should get married? As if to say, that's an incredibly high standard. Why would we enter that? And I think we have to reclaim the radical sense of how Jesus describes God's intent for marriage. And we see some of that here, actually, in Mark chapter 10. Because in verse 10, uh, it says, when the disciples were in the house again, they questioned him on this matter. And he, being Jesus, said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that probably sounds incredibly strict and incredibly harsh. It did then, and I think it does today. Now, it should be said that amongst good Bible-believing Christians, there is disagreement as to if divorce and remarriage is always wrong, and if it isn't, what are the uh, correct exceptions? When can one get a divorce? Now, I often think that we start with that question, and we shouldn't. I think we start with the same question that the Pharisees asked Jesus, instead of saying, what is everything I can do to make this marriage work by the power of God? What can he do to change my heart, to change my spouse's heart? So often we look for the door when I don't think we should. But nonetheless, there is disagreement. Now you might say, well, why is there disagreement? This passage has no exceptions. And you'd be right if you said that. But this is not the only passage that speaks on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And as Bible-believing Christians who believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and God's speech is total truth, it has no mixture of error, there must be a way to fit these various passages together. So Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 7, Luke 12, all of these passages speak on divorce. Now we're not gonna spend much time on other passages today. We're going through Mark. We're understanding how he presents Jesus. But we will briefly look at some of these other passages. Matthew 7 records Jesus as saying, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus seems to present divorce as being acceptable in the case of immorality. Well, what is that? That's a debated issue. It's not actually the word for adultery here. Some people, some scholars believe that uh, adultery would be included. Some people would include abuse as a valid reason for divorce. Some people would include desertion as a valid reason for divorce. Some people would understand that in Matthew's gospel, since he's the only one that says this, that he's actually explaining what he said in Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew says that Joseph was going to divorce Mary, but they were just betrothed. And so some people would understand that this immorality here is sexual immorality during a betrothal period, not during a marriage. But all of that to say there is disagreement amongst people who strive to understand the original meaning and intent of this text. So that's Matthew 5. Matthew 19 is very similar. Romans 7 records Paul as saying something very similar to the end of Mark that we've looked at. 
where he says, for example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Then, if she marries, she is not an adulteress. That seems very similar to verses 10 and 11 and 12 in Mark 10. And then there's 1 Corinthians 7. And this kind of reads like a grab bag of specific advice for different situations. So Paul addresses people who are not married. He addresses people who are married to a non-Christian. He addresses people who are just married in general. He addresses widows and widowers. Lots of specific advice there. And so when we want to understand the totality of what Scripture has to say, we have to deal with the fact that some verses have no exceptions. Well, how does that make sense? And some verses seem to point to there being exceptions. There's work to be done here, but once again, I often think we start with the wrong question of when can I get a divorce? Something has gone wrong if we have gotten to that point. And the last passage that speaks of this is Luke 16 which says everyone who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. And the one who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Very similar to Mark 10. But I want you to hear me on something. Regardless of your understanding of exceptions and divorce and permissibility or anything like that, if there is abuse or the threat of harm to you or your family or your children, you should physically remove yourself from that circumstance. Okay, nowhere in Scripture is a wife called to stay in a situation or a husband called to stay in a situation where his or her or their family's uh, safety is threatened. Okay, so separation, physical separation, would be in order there. Now, separation doesn't have to include divorce, but it may. That is very important for us to understand. But one of the reasons we're not going to spend much time on uh, the exception clauses or anything like that today is one, Mark doesn't, but two, the vast majority of divorces that are sought are not for things like adultery or abuse. They're for far more simple things, you might say. Like that, well, we just fell out of love. We didn't fulfill each other sexually. They were holding me back, okay? Often divorce is initiated for sinful or selfish reasons. And I don't say that to to heap shame on anyone, but that seems to be the reality. I've had friends and acquaintances who have gotten divorced, and it's interesting talking with them before, during, and after that process. Some people have said to me, "Um, okay, so I'm divorced. What are my options, Brian? I said, well, biblically speaking and understanding this person's specific circumstance, once again, circumstances are often different, Remarriage is not an option for you in this case. This person uh, divorced his wife because they just didn't feel compatible, okay? And he said, I just can't believe God wants me to be celibate for the rest of my life. I said, well, what does scripture say? And he says, I just can't believe. Well, the question is, what's our authority? What am I gonna base my life on? My feeling, my conception of what God might say or what God has actually already said in his word? We often are led by our feelings today instead of our faith that is founded in Scripture. Other people have said, um, you know, I have a peace about it. Well, God's never going to give you a peace about something that His Word says is wrong. Biblically speaking, peace is not a way to understand the will of God. People have peace about all sorts of sinful things. But I want to return to that friend who said, I just can't believe God wants me to be celibate. 
Because I ended up saying to him, you know, you're right, God doesn't. He wants you to reconcile with your spouse because in his specific circumstance, he should have never left her. Biblically speaking, that is actually a picture of the gospel, being reconciled to people we have sinned against, as hard as that may be. And I think the reason we struggle so much with working through this, this topic of marriage is because we have bought the lie that marriage is primarily about our happiness and our personal fulfillment. But biblically speaking, it's not. And that's a very recent modern cultural idea. For the majority of human history, divorce, I'm sorry, marriage has been uh, arranged. It wasn't entered because of a feeling. And yet today we often enter it because of a feeling, so I think we implicitly believe we can leave because of a feeling. But no, it may be a feeling that gets you to the altar, but it will be commitment, hopefully for the Christian, both to Christ and your partner that sustains you. So whatever our understandings of when or if a divorce and remarriage is valid, we must feel the radical call that Jesus makes here back to the creation intent and design. We can't just explain that away as, oh Jesus, you're just being extreme again. No, we need to feel that. We need to believe that. But I do want to answer the question of why Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That seems confusing. If they're divorced, why is it adultery? This actually takes us back to what Jesus said a couple of verses earlier, that it wasn't just two people who covenanted together, that it was God who joined the couple together. And so, if the, the, the state may have given you a piece of paper, you may have a civil divorce, but in God's eyes, if your divorce should not have happened, you're, you're actually still one with that previous person. And so a remarriage is adultery because God joins you together. And I think that probably seems odd to us today. But we often kind of live our lives practically as materialists. We don't believe that there are spiritual realities that matter. But this is one that does matter, that God has actually joined a couple together. And so if the divorce shouldn't have happened, the remarriage shouldn't happen either. Now, I do not think there are biblical grounds for believing that this, this adultery in a remarriage is continual. So if you are divorced in remarriage today, hear me like I said earlier, my intent is not to, to harm you, to make you feel shame or anything like that. It could not be further from the point. So if you're, if you're remarried, live for the success, work for the success of your current marriage. Throw yourself into that. Aim to glorify God in that marriage. As Paul would probably say in 1 Corinthians 7, stay in the circumstance that you're currently in. And if you're currently married and contemplating divorce, pray for, your, pray for your heart. Ask that God would change it. Ask that God would change your spouse's heart and consider strongly Jesus' radical call to his design for marriage. And realize that while your marriage may be difficult, in God's providence, the difficulties in life are one of the main ways he shapes us into the image of his son. As uncomfortable as that is, the end goal is good because he is a good creator and a good God. If you're divorced, hear me on this. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. I would say to you, as much as it depends on you, try and reconcile with your previous spouse. There's a beautiful picture there that, that happens and it communicates something remarkable about forgiveness and grace, which tells us something about the gospel. And remember that there is grace for every sin and there is mercy for every hurt in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And if you're remarried, the same applies to you. If your divorce shouldn't have happened, if your remarriage shouldn't have happened, neither of those are unforgivable sins. All of us are sinners before God. All sin is not the same, but the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us is better in God's eyes than another unless we are in Christ. So everyone who comes to Christ and repents of their sin will find him to be a perfect savior. Everyone. And if you've been hurt by someone close to you, know that Jesus knows and cares about your pain. He is a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with suffering and grief. He was actually executed by the people he came to save. He knows what it's like to be hurt by people you love. But there are also people here at church in the body of Christ who would love to comfort you and walk with you through whatever difficult time you're going through. We have people in our care room out in the back through the lobby who would love nothing more than to sit with you, to hear your story, to pray with you, to walk with you through whatever is going on in your life. And if you're single and you're here and you're thinking, okay, what does all this have to do with me? Well, just as as a, a base point, it's helpful for us to understand God's design. But more than that, likely you will end up married. Not everyone will. Marriage is not a calling for everyone. And that's, that's perfectly acceptable and good, actually. But if you are ever considering getting married, consider now the radical standard that God sets for what fidelity looks like to his purpose in marriage. The writer to the Hebrews says that marriage is something that should be honored by all. Now, it's a wonderful thing, but like so many things that are worth doing, it is a very difficult thing. Marriage is a tool for our sanctification, and the, the way in which God makes us more and more Christ-like. And often that does not feel good while we're doing it, though it has a good for its end. So none of us, married, single, divorced, remarried, none of us have lived up to God's ideal for our relationships. Okay, and if you're married, and let's say you haven't gotten a divorce, you have still not loved your spouse as you should. All of us have failed to live up to God's design. But there's hope, and there's grace. And in Ephesians 5, the Bible likens Christ's relationship to his people, the church, as a marriage. And in giving guidance to husbands and wives, Paul actually leverages that to teach us something about Christ and the church. And then he turns around and leverages this picture of Christ and the church to tell us something about husbands and wives. And so let's look very briefly at what he says. He says that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That the way God has designed this relationship, this marriage relationship to work, is the wife respectfully and lovingly submits to her husband. And what's our pattern for that? Well, how the the church submits to Christ. That's a very clear thing we understand, right? The church submits to its head, its leader, Christ. And so too it should be with a wife and a marriage. Now that may be hit our, will hit our ears kind of odd in 2018. But I think the next verse is actually more revolutionary. And it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How did he love the church? He died for her. Jesus died to save a people for himself. That's the type of sacrificial leading and love that the husband is called to. So the wife is called to lovingly submit. The husband is called to sacrificially lead. And Paul tells us that Jesus did this, this dying for the church, to make her holy with the washing of water by the word. And he did this to present the church to himself in splendor. He saved a people for himself to be his possession. 
to glorify him and that he could love. Those two things are true. We are saved to glorify him. God is worthy of us being uh, and giving him glory. And he loves us when he doesn't have to. A beautiful truth. But Jesus will also present us without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but he will present us holy and blameless. So when we all realize that we have fallen short of the glory of God, we realize in this passage that there is grace for every sin, there's mercy for every hurt, and that ultimately for those who are in Christ, we will be presented clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ and looking holy and blameless, not due to any intrinsic good on our part, but because of the mercy and grace and righteousness of Jesus. Paul also goes on to say that husbands are to love their wives just as their own body, just as Christ did for the church. And then he finishes, to sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. If we practiced those two principles, those last two verses, his summary, divorce is not likely to be an occurrence. If we approach our relationships and marriages with the desire to first and foremost glorify God, we are unlikely to see them fail. But we are still living in that messy, hurt-filled time between the marriage in the garden and the wedding banquet in heaven. We are still unglorified sinners the side of heaven. And this passage reminds us that while all of us have sinned, for everyone who is in Christ, we will be presented pure and blameless when Jesus returns. Those who are in Christ do not have to carry the burden of their previous shame and guilt and sin. Jesus has taken that. He's taken the sin that has been done against you if that person is in Christ. He's taken the sin that you have sinned against other people. And when we realize this, it frees us to understand that the person who sins against me is actually just as much in need of God's grace as I am. And that when someone sins against me, the greater sin is actually against God. I need grace just as much as that person needs grace. And each of our sins and hurts are part of God's plan for our growth and our sanctification. So, today we have looked at another one of the very difficult sayings of Jesus. And we've considered what God's best and designed for marriage looks like. And we've also seen that none of us live up to that design. All of us have fallen short in some ways. But there is forgiveness in Christ and the gospel. So while earthly marriages may end, Jesus will never leave or forsake you. While you may have been divorced, Jesus will never divorce you. And while we are living in this time after the garden, let us remember and find hope and comfort in the fact that for those in Christ, there is a wedding banquet in our future with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word when you did not have to. You designed us for a purpose and you told us what that purpose is and how we should live and how we should walk in it. And it's for our good and it's for your glory. I ask that you would give us the strength to walk in your design in marriage and singleness in whatever our life circumstance, that we would strive to honor you first and foremost in our relationships, whatever those relationships are. God, work on our heart to soften them if if they need to be softened towards a previous spouse or someone who's hurt us or maybe even our current spouse. God, work in those relationships to restore and heal and draw people to yourself. I thank you for your revelation. I thank you for your gospel and salvation that's available to all who repent. And I ask all of these things in your name. Amen.